The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer. And my very special guest today is UCI music professor Stephen Tucker, who also happens to have the very big job of conducting the UCI Symphony Orchestra. He's been at UCI since the year 2000 when he arrived here from UCLA. Welcome to UCI Conversations, Maestro Tucker. How are you today? Just fine. Thanks for having me, Kevin. I'm doing well, despite, you know, the world situation, how we live. We might as well just think of it as success. Uh, I like it. (laughs) Well, why don't we just start from the beginning? You have quite an interesting background. Can you tell us where you were born and what you liked to do when you were a kid? Sure. I was born in Kingston, Jamaica. I'm one of six siblings. And one of those, one of the five, is my identical twin, Paul. So we grew up playing soccer, cricket, doing all the usual British-influenced things. And, of course, we learned to play the piano. I played for church, played piano and organ at a very early age, probably from around the age of 10, we were playing for church services. So... That was what we loved to do, along with sports, of course. And then one had to go. So sports took a sidestep and music just held on. Yeah, yeah. Like around what years are we talking about for your elementary school? Okay, so elementary school, let me discuss the system because most people listening to this in the American system, they don't understand it. So we start school just like everybody else. I think... Kids in the U.S. start at six also. I think you start first grade. I don't know. We go to school at six. But here's where things diverge. By the time you're 10, you must sit an exam to determine if you end up going to what we call secondary school, which is technically high school. Because by the time you're 15, you could actually have completed what was necessary, although most people hang around for another couple of years because we have a system called forms. So after you sit the exam at 10, if you pass, you get to select one of the high schools that you would like to go to. 
And so you go and let's just say from 11 till 15, you have forms one through five or whatever you want to call it. We can stay for sixth form, which is 6A, which is the lower sixth, and then upper sixth, you can go to that. That's really preparation for college. Or as some people reminded me, it's actually the first year of college in that system. So that's your age bracket. And we're talking about, oh, the 60s. So mid to late 60s. And so often it seems like kids are forced, you know, their parents like, hey, you have to practice. But it sounds like you and your brother weren't like that. You just had a natural love of music. Is that right? don't know if it's natural, but we did have a love of music. (laughs) So, (laughs) yes, we did play quite a bit. Um, I hear stories from my older siblings. I have two older sisters and one brother who is deceased. I mean, I never counted him in the six when I was telling you. He's, he was much older. But they told us that ever since we were babies in the crib, we would just, we would hum and sing together. So our first gift was a set of harmonicas, two harmonicas given to us by my older brother. And so we ended up playing duets on that. So they sensed that there was some musical ability there. My two older sisters started taking piano lessons. And so a piano ended up in the house and we started playing. The funny story they tell us that is we started playing for church before we had lessons. I disagree with that because I do recall my mother who doesn't play, who didn't play, I say she's she's deceased now, setting us down and taking a book and saying, the book says, this is C, and C where the two black keys are. So technically that was my first lesson. But what they're talking about is we didn't really have formal lessons yet, but we started playing. And... Um, Lessons came later, came as a, a reward, actually, to us, um, which is something I've only recently remembered, that in our style of growing up, a bicycle is everything to a child in Jamaica, or I'm sure it's like that in a lot of places. And we wanted a bicycle badly. And my mother said, well, I can't afford to get you a bicycle for both of you, but We'll see how things go. So when we are about to sit the exam, she's the common entrance exam, they call it. She said, well, you have a choice. If you pass the exam, I can get you a bicycle or you can have piano lessons. And we both said, oh, piano lessons, which was to this day. To this, this day, I think about it and I think, man, we must have been serious about wanting to learn the proper way that things went. So that's how we started piano lessons. Yeah. And I understand that your family was in a country that doesn't really have a middle class. You you guys were a little bit middle class. Is, is that true? Yes. If, if I were to compare it to, to our concept of middle class now, I tell my friends you know, and family, I wasn't poor, but we weren't rich. When I look back and think about what my parents did, especially my father, 
He wanted us to understand that we were privileged, that we had opportunities that other people just did not have. And boy, did we see it when we went to elementary school. We saw kids in school without shoes, something that just baffled us. We couldn't understand how people didn't have that. But my father wanted us to see that and remember that. So, yeah. you know, how did he afford it? Did they, they, they must have had some decent job in a place that it's hard to get decent jobs. Is that true? Or was there? A- yeah. Yeah. Back in the, 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 the Jamaica I grew up in is not the Jamaica today. So back then with two parents working, my mother became a nurse. Uh-huh. Um, she went went to school and became a nurse and worked that. And my father always had a job with a large American company, so they both were working. And I suspect that's how we could afford to, you know, go through life the way we went through life, taking music lessons and all that stuff. You do have a wonderful story. Do you want to share it about? There was a school like five minutes away from your home, but you're. Oh, you remember that. Oh, my goodness. It's impressive. Uh, Yes, it's it's actually, when I say five minutes, it's not five minutes by car. It's literally five minutes walking from our house. There was a school, an elementary school, and my parents wouldn't let us go there. And I always thought they just didn't want us to hang around the kids in the neighborhood all day. But I learned later on that my father took us way across town to a place where the students had it worse. The neighborhood was much worse. But he knew the teacher there, the headmistress. He knew her, but he wanted us to experience that. And I think before he passed away sometime, I think I had a, I questioned him. Yeah. And he said, he said, you needed to see, all of you needed to see that life is not easy for everybody. You're having it a lot easier than others. And I wanted you to work and look at that and remember that there are people who are struggling and what you thought was a hard time was a joke, you know, compared to their lives. So he was a very smart man. I didn't realize that until he was gone. That that was a lesson that I think we all learned. Very good. In Jamaica, can you generalize the sound of Jamaica? Is it steel drums or is that just way too simplified? No, I, I know what you're getting at, but let, let me make a differentiation Please. here. Steel drums are mostly associated with Trinidad. So in Jamaica, I I know they must have some form of steel drums there, but it's not very, it's not the dominant thing. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking of um, societal sound, the sound is more folk music. And then, of course, you know, coming out of what we had as our traditional music, you know, rock steady and all that stuff, then came Bob Marley. And so then everybody started learning about reggae. So if you're thinking of the sound of Jamaica back in the late 60s and 70s, and I'm sure for a very long time, even now, it's the sound of reggae. Anybody landing in Jamaica right now at one of the two international airports, you will probably hear people singing folk music from the 
old times. So, so the sound of Jamaica is essentially uh, one of um, pop music or reggae. But when I was growing up, and this is what most people don't understand, classical music was a major part of the Jamaican culture, major. And so you would find countless students studying piano, violin, all sorts of things. So that's the, the, the milieu that we grew up in, you know, reggae with classical music around us. Gotcha. Interesting. Now, was there Beatle music in there too, or not as much? We had radio stations that played those things. We had two national radio stations. And then uh, obviously, you know, you could once in a while pick up stations from overseas or something, but they played international music. And of course we heard the Beatles. We heard all sorts of everybody, you know, Um, of course. Yeah. There was a nice mix there. Gotcha. Yeah. So when it came time for college, did you, study in Jamaica or did you make your way to the United States at that point? Okay, that's a good segue because during the 70s, I would say very early 70s, I I would even go back as far as 70, 71. My mother realized that there was very little she thought she could give us in Jamaica. And since she had relatives in the United States, um, Mm. she decided she was going to make this great sacrifice and leave Jamaica, come up here and try to carve out a system where she could bring the family. And um, that's one of the saddest times in our lives I can remember because she would write to us and tell us how much she cried every night, cried herself to sleep because she missed her family. But she knew it was the best thing she was doing for us. So in 1973, my father passed away suddenly. And even though my brother and I did not want to leave Jamaica, two of our siblings, well, three of our siblings had left already and gone to join my mother. And then when my other sister, the one just ahead of us, decided she was going also, we both were left there in the family home, living with my mother's father, my maternal grandfather. And one day we went to the Jamaica School of Music, which is where we were taking lessons at the time. And a friend of ours was playing a recital. We're talking, you know, teenagers. And my father wanted to go somewhere with us that evening. So he said, just when you get back, I'll take you to see the nurse who delivered you because she hasn't seen you since you were born. And we kind of delayed on the way back. People started coming out of their homes and just standing on the side. And we got up, got to our street and found out my father had passed away suddenly from an aneurysm, a brain aneurysm. So that now precipitated my mother coming back to bury him and insisting that we had to leave Jamaica. The two of us now had to come to New York. So that's how we left in 1973. From there, we took our paths. Before we get into that, Professor, excuse me for a moment while I update our listeners. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer. And my guest today is UCI Music Chair Stephen Tucker, who's also the conductor of the UCI Symphony Orchestra. And we're talking about his life and his life in music. And he grew up in Jamaica, but has just 
come to the United States to reunite with his mom, who was creating a life for their family there. And please, Professor, tell us what happened then. So my brother, people always remind me when I say my brother, I keep forgetting I have another brother, but I only talk about my twin as if it's my only brother, right? (laughs) But he and I had been made to realize that there was some instruction that we needed about technical things and musically important things. There was a professor, a Jamaican who had just finished his doctorate in, at Boston University and had come back to Jamaica to teach at the Jamaica School of Music. And little did we know that he knew of us when we were infants. And then throughout the years, he heard about us that we were playing. And so there was this group that got together and convinced us that we needed to come back and study with him for a while. And we came to New York and my mother just wouldn't hear of it. She said, there's no way you're going back. But uh, I'll cut all of that short to say we end up, ended up defying my mother and going back to Jamaica. No. To study. Wow. To study. Oh, yes. That's one of, the, <laughs> one, of the things, one of the things I try not to remember. That morning we left from Kennedy Airport, went back to Jamaica. While we were there, we were studying. And of course, friends got together and got us jobs, you know, teaching in different places. And my brother, Paul, decided he had always wanted to fly. So he started taking flying lessons. All of that to say, Eventually, when we left Jamaica permanently, I'm sorry, he went to commercial flight school and became a commercial pilot. So technically, he left music. But the teacher we went back to study with, we would see him every once in a while in the United States. And he would say, oh, don't worry about it. He'll be back. It's in his blood. (laughs) And sure enough, he came back and did his doctorate and then taught for 15 years at the University of Kansas. He was the director of choral activities, and then he retired last year. Hmm. He chose to retire last year. So when people ask me about the routing of my, my life, I have to point that out, because while that was happening, I then ended up in Massachusetts in a music school, uh, did my bachelor's there, which is where I actually started studying conducting. Oh, okay. That's that's how things went for that. And then when that was finished, I had an opportunity to move to California where my brother was. And he was actually <laughs> teaching flight school and flying oh. and was building a recording studio. And he said, I could use your help. So I moved to California, okay. to Riverside. From Riverside, I went to the Vienna Conservatory to study conducting and then returned for studies at UCLA. That's the quick version. Right. So is it in the year 2000 that you came to UCI? Yes. I came right out of UCLA because I was approached there and said they're looking for a conductor for one year at UCI. The funny story is I didn't know where UCI was at the time. So I said to them, where's Irvine? And they just said, just look it up. And so now I understand that you really weren't that crazy about coming to UCI. Do I have that right? You do. Is is that the reason just because you didn't know where it was at or was there more to it? 
No, it's, it started with not knowing about UCI and then coming to UCI. It was just not in my plans. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story that it gives you a, an idea of why I was so ambivalent about any of this. Right? When I came back from Vienna, the chair of the music department at UCLA was at the time somebody I had known. And most people did not know that he left Jamaica when he was seven years old. So I mean, he's a lot older than I am, but but he had Jamaican roots. So somehow, somewhere, he knew of us. And so in Riverside, I reconnected with him because he was the conductor of the Redland Symphony. Oh. So I would go to rehearsals to listen to his rehearsals, and we would talk. You know, And he would approach me and say, we need somebody like you at UCLA, you know, and I would say, no, I can't go back to school. Now. I just came back from Vienna. I just, I can't do school again. And the next year he would come with us. And I would turn him down. The third time he came, he said, look, you will get your doctorate at no cost to you. And I said, what? Why didn't you say that before? <laughs> he said, I've been saying it every single time. So you can see that I didn't want to leave what I was doing, the work I was doing to go back to school. But that convinced me that I wouldn't have to pay to get a doctorate. So I might as well go. What they wanted me for was to be music director at musical theater and to be the assistant conductor at opera UCLA, which in itself, anybody being told that would have jumped at it, but I didn't want to go back to school at the time. So when they told me at UCLA, they're looking for somebody at UCI. You can imagine I'm going, oh, no, more of this. Uh, uh. And that, and then I came and I resisted for a while until I figured out how to embrace it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it was a, just a personal process yeah, yeah it, it was most if not all of it was personal and um, I, I look back now and I think well I'm glad I I got the counseling I got from some of the professors at UCLA who just told me just shut up and do your job <laughs> <laughs> so I try uh, to do that <laughs> yeah professor is there a distinction you know you've mentioned musical theater you mentioned opera, you know, we, you, you have extensive experience with symphony. Are there different challenges? Are there different difficulties to the different areas? Can you describe that at all? Or, or no, it's all the same. No, no, it's that de- there are definite differences. And I, I tell people, I tell my peers, I tell students, anybody who will listen at the time, opera is by far the most difficult. And they always ask, well, why is that so? Well, you have so much that you're in, you're, you're in charge of that you must be on top of, you must pay attention to. You've got not just the orchestra, you have singers up there who are moving around yeah. and they're, you, you're having to track them and they're supposed to stay in connection with you, but it doesn't always work out that right, way. Right, right. And of course, it, the music itself is generally so complex mm. that that you have to really be 
on top of it, paying attention. I mean, I know people like Bernstein used to complain about ballet, you know, dancing like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah one day it's too fast, the next day it's too slow. You know, <laughs> that is a challenge that we all face when we do ballet. Musical theater, on the other hand, and this is honestly how I feel I get a breather as against opera, is that they stop and talk. Uh-huh, uh-huh. There's no such thing in opera. Mm. Everything is 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 free through some. So you're having to be, until there is an intermission, you are dead on. There is no break. You must do that. Symphony, on the other hand, for me, I love because it gives me a chance to plan almost inviolably what I hope to accomplish without relying on anybody else's whims or movement. So I find conducting symphonies a little bit more refreshing, just as strenuous as any any conducting. But if I had to choose something that would give me a chance to breathe, it would be it would be a symphony. Right? Somewhere along the line, I was at some kind of public speaking event or something, and then and they were talking about the stresses of business and you have all these different variables. And they said, you know, the only person that doesn't really have any stress is a conductor because the conductor is in charge, blah, blah, blah. So I've always wanted to ask a conductor, is that true? This is, is a conductor a stress-free environment? That must have been somebody who knows nothing about that. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I thought probably. Absolutely, because I mean, I might as well if I had to pick somebody out of the air, I'd say, okay, a CEO has no stress. What what kind of um what kind of claim would that be? That doesn't make any sense. Right. Every, right. Everybody has stress. Right. Um, the conductor does not walk out on stage thinking, I can do anything I want to do. <laughs> Nobody can make it not so. I mean, it is the craziest thing. Conductors yeah. are probably under the greatest stress. Most of the times people wonder why. Well, I'll tell you why. Because they don't make any sound. They're relying on everybody else to make mm. right sounds. What you, as my old teacher used to say, he used to make a joke. He said, they give you this little stick <laughs> and you're supposed to fend off all the sound coming at you. They wouldn't even give you a baseball bat. <laughs> so how do you defend yourself against the sound, good or bad, coming? The stress can be debilitating. Some people actually, I've heard this, some people actually throw up before they go out. Wow. Some wow. people have to be pushed out on stage. Wow. I don't suffer from that. So, you know, most of the times orchestras look at me and go, don't you ever get stressed? I say, the moment I don't feel stress, I'm concerned. Mm. And the stress I talk about is anxiety, you know, knowing that I'm about to do something really, really important and I don't want to screw it up. That's my answer to that. <laughs> Talking along those lines, do you, have you ever had a really bad day at the office? Like, oh my, you know, the, you, do, do you remember that? Do you want to share that? Or it's like, no, I don't ever want to think about that again. Oh, I probably have so many of them that I, I can't even pinpoint one now. I, I remember at least two incidents where where the orchestra and the conductor 
were not together. We were far apart and there was a soloist also. And when the piece was over, the players were walking off stage and looking at me and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm thinking, they have no clue how many years of my life I just lost trying to to write that, to get it back together. Because if you know what you're doing, you know where to start. And if they are good at what they do, they know what to rely on. And the moment they try to fix it by themselves, everybody's in trouble. I can't fix it by myself. What I have to do is align myself with the soloist in whichever way I can. And then through whatever means, indicate to the orchestra what's coming up that we would like to meet at what point, what juncture in the music we should meet. Sometimes it's just sheer luck that they're on the same wavelength because you can't show them very much with one hand. You can't show them an A or you can't show them an F. You know, you just have to assume that when you give them this emphatic nod, they jump to the right place. And sometimes they do. Most of the times, only a part of the group ends up there, but the rest of them are listening keenly enough and they can sometimes recognize where that is. Wow. And it comes back together. So yeah. it's, um, it's a heart-stopping experience, but you yeah. have to go, go through it as if nothing is happening because the audience, unless they know that you're a part, they're not supposed to know visually that you're frantic. Right. You know, I don't think almost all of the general public realize quite, I mean, it, it sounds a little bit like a tightrope. That you're... <laughs> that's, a very good, that's a very good analogy. I, I never thought of that. Because I don't think of it that way when I'm going out there. I'm going out there supremely confident, yeah. um, especially if I know that people know what they're supposed to be doing and, and, and they're attentive to it. I don't know, even with student orchestra, I, if I feel they're prepared, I don't go out worried. I go out just attentive and I try to expect that of them from the way we've rehearsed. So I, I, I never really thought of it as me going out to be doing a balancing act. Yeah. So you go out confident, you prepared, you certainly know more than the audience of what's going on. The musicians know it, but once you're in it, are you saying that there's a side of that, that, you know, everybody's trying to stay it, because I think in my mind, you know, it's like one, two, three, four, and everybody's like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But you're kind of describing like, you know, there's a lot of players in the symphony, the orchestra, and there's a lot of opportunities to. Let me see if I can make it clearer for the listener that within that one, two, three, four, since music is not uh, accounting right? There is a lot of flexibility there. There is slowing down, there is speeding up, there's all sorts of things. So they are attentive to not just their counting one, two, three, four, or even me beating one, two, three, four. They're more attentive to certain things like phrasing, flexibility, what makes this work, 
this animal that's going to rise up and come back and slow down and all that stuff. They're paying attention to that. And so if for some reason something does not align at a particular moment, it's not because they weren't adhering to the one, two, three, four. For example, the, the, the case with the solace, the solace could have just decided at this point she wanted to go faster. And she just started going faster. And so now I am the conduit between the soloist and the orchestra. And I have to try to catch her. Well, everybody is responding to everybody. So it comes later. And so before you know it, we could have a gap of a few measures, you know, where we're not together. Mm. So it's the the simplest way for me to explain. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me one more time, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest is UCI Music Chair Stephen Tucker, and we're talking about all things music. Professor, you mentioned Leonard Bernstein. Did you ever have the opportunity to meet him? No, I never met Leonard. Have you, have you ever, in your long career, is there anybody that you still are like, I can't believe I met this talent. Is there anybody like that? Or I'll tell you what I remember most is that I had a chance to study with Robert Blomstedt one summer. And a lot of people don't know who Blomstedt is, and they pronounce it you know, like K-U-S-E, Blomstedt. I don't know how to get a U sound out of an O. But anyway, <laughs> I had the privilege of working with him one summer. And he is not a flashy conductor, but one of the things I still think about to this day is how deeper mind he is. And when the music world started realizing, for example, I, I saw him with the Boston Symphony one week I was there and everybody in the hall, and they're very knowledgeable people, the audience members, and they say, I can't believe He's never conducted here at a subscription concert. He conducted them at Tanglewood before and all that kind of stuff, but they could not believe they had not had him in Symphony Hall conducting them. Now, in his 90s, he's one of the most sought-after conductors everywhere. He comes to L.A. He was music director at San Francisco for a while, for a period of time, and he still lives in Sweden. And I cannot believe that. 90 plus year old can do what he does and wow. almost everything from memory you know <laughs> so i when i think of somebody i can't believe i met that's who i think of mm. i actually worked for simon rattle in preparing a choral thing the la master carol preparing of work that he was going to conduct so i met him in rehearsal but and I still think he's one of the most amazing conductors I know alive. But having worked with Blumstead and observed him up close, I, I'm still in awe of that. Mm, very good. How about in terms of your music career, have you had sublime moments where it just, it just comes, you know, is a conductor ever allowed to have that? Or, you know, can you allow yourself or or, there's so much going on? There's, you can't really 
appreciate yeah. it like that. Does that make any sense? Or? No, you, you're making sense. Um, because it's, it, I, I don't care what you do if you're a basketball player or whatever. You could be Kobe Bryant. There are times when, you know, I, I hear clips of Kobe saying, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I, <laughs> I didn't understand what was going on. Well, everybody has that. Uh, most of the times, what the issue is that you don't give yourself much of an opportunity to reflect on it until it's so far in the past that you think, oh, wow, that was incredible. Well, I conducted at Avery Fisher Hall in New York. And you know what I remember most about that? What? I, even after living 14 years in New York, I made a big mistake of driving myself from Queens to Manhattan. Uh Uh-huh. And this is Lincoln Center, right? Correct. And I and got caught in traffic and rain and walked into the hall backstage to go to my dressing room to get dressed. And they're escorting me up when the orchestra, the chorus, everybody is already on stage. And I still have to go and get dressed. And that performance to me is still a blur. Uh-huh. I cannot remember whatever happened. I know the, the house was fairly full, but I rely on people to tell me what it was like because it, I was just frantic Yeah, because I was late. And right. so right. when I think of moments that I remember that the bad one comes up, <laughs> I can think of times when I've gone to Hungary to conduct the Hungarian national film or to Slovakia and think of what a sublime sound comes out of the orchestra, but they don't stick with me as much as the one that I thought I I almost screwed up by by getting there late. That's funny. Professor, what's the difference between a symphony and an orchestra? Uh, All right. So I'm going to give you, the ridiculous baby answer and everybody's going to say, well, we know that. Well, let's start with symphony. Symphony is the title of a specific work. Then what's applied to the group that plays that work, they call it a symphony. Honestly, an orchestra can be any size. The the word actually means that amalgamation of instrumentalists coming together and playing together. Now, I think the one that confuses people is when they hear a symphony orchestra or they hear a philharmonic, you know, Mm. and they ask, well, what's the difference? Well, in Europe, they'll look at you and say, there's no difference. It's just... A, you know, difference in words and how we, they address it. So when you ask about orchestras against symphony, it's pretty easy for me to describe that difference. When you ask about symphony and philharmonic, then I'll just have to toss it up in the air and just go. Um, there is no definitive distinction that people would give you in words. Some people like philharmonic, some people like consort, some people like symphony, you know, some people like orchestra, like the Philadelphia Orchestra. They don't call themselves a symphony or a philharmonic. And then New York calls themselves the New York Philharmonic. And Boston calls itself Boston Symphony. And what do they call the LA? LA Phil. Right. It's the choice. Right? Okay. 
do you have a favorite composer? Ah, if you hadn't asked that question, I would have had you banished. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I hit it. <laughs> because every student in my class has to know this because they sometimes get it on their final exam as a bonus question. Oh, okay. I, but usually they have to answer it verbatim to the way it was described to them. Um, Johannes Brahms is my favorite composer. As some friends of mine, symphonic players say, um, one student told me that her mother, who is the professor of horn at Baylor and who plays with the LA Chamber Orchestra also, she comes back and plays. She said, that's her desert island composer. And I went, what? Yeah, if she were banished to a desert island and could only have one composer's works, she would want to have Brahms. And I thought, that's a good way to put it. He's my desert island composer. Johannes <laughs> yeah. Brahms. Very good. You've had quite a long career. Are, are there any goals or dreams that you know that you're... <laughs> I knew this was coming. <laughs> <laughs> As soon as you hesitated, I knew this was coming. Um, I'll tell you, it's the strangest thing. I have no drop-dead goal. I know I want to continue to conduct gorgeous music. And the better the players, the more flexibility you have. But as my old teachers say, the better you have to be also. So... My anticipation is that I will still have opportunities in the future to continue to grow and rise at the level of the groups that I'm privileged to conduct. Can you describe for us the UCI music department? Yes, the department is is quite varied. I mean, we have, I'll start with the, the, the largest degrees. We have two PhD programs. One in musicology and music theory, music history and music theory. It's called MH slash MT. And they train people in the academic pursuits of music mainly. It's not, it's, nothing is ever one thing only. The other one is in ICIT, which is integrated composition. I stop at composition always because people have to understand that it was mainly a composition program, but they wanted to integrate it with technology, right? So the people who go into that program go in knowing that they must be coming in to learn the technological aspects of music creation, music composition, and performance. So that program is a PhD also. And then when we move on from there, we have all the instruments you would think of, piano, violoncello, viola, all the wind instruments. We have a jazz program that's been there all along. And the, the head of that program was Miles Davis's last keyboard player, Professor Kei Akagi. So we're pretty proud of those things. We also have a vocal area where we have voice lessons. We have opera. We have a Persian professor in our department who teaches Persian music and Persian instrument performance. So it's, as I say, it's quite diverse, you know, in its presentations. We do performances. Now, COVID has 
made it so that we suffer probably more than most people because mm-hmm. people cannot play physically together. We hear, though, that next year we should plan for 100% in person. I mean, the rooms will not necessarily be filled 100%, but we need to start planning to move ourselves back to in-person lectures and in-person rehearsals and performances. So that could be a bright spot on the horizon. Yes. So in this last year with musicians, Mm -hmm. was it Zoom or how did they learn? Yes, we resorted to Zoom like everybody else. And then we're fortunate to have People in our department, I spoke of ICIT, their technological prowess. We have professors there who were always looking for solutions. And one professor, Dr. Dessen, had been doing telematic performances before and playing with people in distant places and being synced up. So he started distributing for everybody the technique or the, the, the skill or the method by which they would use software to try to cut down on the delay in Zoom that occurs that makes it almost impossible to play together. So he came up with a system and we started purchasing little packets and giving it around to teachers and students so they could start working in a way that was reasonable. You wouldn't have that great delay that made no sense. Of course, Zoom is only designed for speaking. And the quality of sound is certainly nowhere where we need it to be for music. Even if we get it synced up, it still doesn't sound good. You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is music department chair and conductor of the UCI Symphony Orchestra, Stephen Tucker. Here he describes a powerful moment of adversity that he overcame in his career. For the students out there, Professor, in terms of adversity in your life, so often I think students look at professors like, oh, they were just a natural and it was smooth sailing. Can you pinpoint a experience where you had adversity that you had to somehow overcome yeah in my old age now i've I've changed (laughs) i changed my rule to keeping certain stories back because there are certain stories i used to tell people when i didn't think they were as desperate as they thought but the moment i thought they were terribly on the brink i would give them my worst story And so when I say in my old age, I guess I'm becoming more willing to share my, what I still consider to be the worst experience in my life because it delayed my study in music. I auditioned at Juilliard for the conducting program. This was long before I had any business trying to not only audition for a program, but to think about conducting because I wasn't prepared. I hadn't studied enough. And they told me, I'm just cutting this quickly. They told me I had no musical talent. None. Now, when you hear that, you there is a lot to think about. Yeah. Somebody says to you, you have no musical talent. Don't try again. So 
when I tell students that they can be crying, just weeping about something in their life. And I say, let me tell you something. And so you can understand that I, I do feel somewhat what you feel. And I tell them that story. They immediately start wiping their eyes and say, what? Yeah. Somebody told you that? Yeah. And suddenly their issue for whatever reason at that moment doesn't seem as devastating so that's the story i usually keep yeah. for students yeah. who think they're at the end of the rope as i said i used to withhold that story but age gives you perspective mm-hmm. <laughs> so. what's the most difficult part of conducting um the, it, it's the ultimate in multitasking because when, when people say, yeah, but you, you have two hands, yeah. I said, no, we're not talking about hands. We're talking about brain to hand, eyes. Because, and then the most important thing, the ears. Because if you cannot integrate these things, and, and so if you can't integrate them, you have the hardest time trying to learn conducting. That's that part of it. The next thing is, and I used to say this to students, a conductor has to live in three time zones. And they go, well, what does that mean? Well, I not only have to live in what I'm doing now, I have to be planning what I'm about to do how I'm going to shape what's coming. But you know what it's based on? What I did before. What I'm doing in the present is based on what I did just prior to that. So everything is just reflecting on those three times, three places that you must be. That is the hardest thing about conducting. It's not the physical. The physical... I used to tell my class, I can teach a monkey to do that. They still write back. Students who left here 19 years ago write back and say, did you find the monkey yet? (laughs) Because I would tell them, I can teach a monkey to do that. The problem is the monkey doesn't know why he's doing it. So that's the challenge of conducting. I understand that you love music, but you also love to teach. (laughs) Who told you that? Did I I get it wrong? No. (laughs) No, I'm always trying to fool my kids. Sometimes I'll stand on the podium and say, I just hate teaching. And they would just, they would look up at me and say, yeah, that's why we do it so much. (laughs) No, I, you, you hit it right on the head. My brother and I had this disease called teaching that, even as children, we were always talking, you know, identical twins, you know, we're supposed to be able to figure out what the other one is thinking. And believe me, we do. But we would always talk about how would be a better way to teach this. I'll leave you with this story that the professor who got us to go back to Jamaica told us. He said he was so excited that he was going to be able to teach the two of us, you know, equal talent, you know, brain, you know, all that stuff. He said, I think the way I'm going to do this is just 
everybody's supposed to get an hour lesson. I'm going to teach them both together. So each one gets two hours. Right? So that was the way he thought. So I could double up on my lessons. And he said, one point he, he could not figure out why he was so exhausted. He would go home and he would just flop down and he couldn't get up. He would fall asleep. And he said he came back and he just couldn't figure out if he was sick or something. But then he was teaching one of us. And he said he was sitting at the piano and both of us were on either side. And he was demonstrating something and telling us, well, if you do it this way and, and practice like this, that would be fine. And he said he looked up and he saw both, four eyes, both of us looking at each other. And then one just shook his head like, okay. And he said, it hit him. He was working against two brains for two hours. lessons, And he said it drained him and he couldn't understand. But I always think about that when I think of our history of exploring teaching, because even at the earliest age, we would weigh things into, does that make sense? Quietly, silently. And we would, you know, calculate and then communicate and accept or deny. And so that got us to the place where we, we developed certain skills in teaching. I would go to Kansas and he would ask me to teach his conducting students. And he would sit there at the piano just to play for the demonstration for me. And I would start talking and all the conductors would burst out laughing. And I turn and look at him and say, what, what, did I say something funny? He said, no, they've heard those words in exactly the same way. And they just think it's funny that (laughs) you walk in and you're saying exactly the same thing (laughs) in the same phraseology, not like you said it differently. So that's why they laugh. So that's the history of our dedication to teaching and always exploring different ways to teach. Professor Stephen Tucker, thank you so much for spending the hour with us today to to give us just a glimpse inside your special world of music. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you. It was great being with you. Thank you you again to UCI Music Chair, Maestro, and Conductor, Professor Stephen Tucker, for taking the time to share his story and his love for music, education, and life. He has come on an amazing journey from Kingston, Jamaica, to New York City, Boston, Los Angeles, and finally finding a home at UCI. I don't think I will ever forget his story about adversity. And hopefully COVID-19 will continue to decrease and music concerts will be back in full swing for the fall quarter at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts. And coming up next on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, the show that examines common business problems with experienced business leaders. Stay tuned. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs show dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Comments and suggestions are always welcomed at 
kboss at KUCI.org. And my podcast website is www.bossenmeyer.com. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, leaving you to enjoy a musical piece by Professor Tucker's favorite composer, Johannes Brahms. It is Piano Quintet in F Minor, Opus 34. Have a good evening. Keep wearing those masks, physically distancing, and getting that vaccine as soon as possible. We'll see you next week. So long, everybody.